0: Welcome to the sermon podcast from Compass Church. In this sermon from January 9th, 2022, Pastor Craig Kidder preaches from 2 Corinthians 5 and confronts the lie that you can trust God but not other people. For more information, please visit compasscfc.com. Amen. You can have a seat. My name is Craig. I am one of the pastors here. And I just have one question for you this morning. Uh, what keeps our britches in between the ditches. What keeps our britches in between the ditches? Now, if you're like me, if you're like me, you didn't grow up in the South, so you're like, I have no idea what that means. What are you asking me? But look, the people from the South know how to turn a phrase, all right? Think about it for just a second. Between the ditches, all right? If you think about a road, there's a ditch on one side, And then there's a ditch on another side. So what keeps us on the road? What keeps us doing what we do? All right, that's the question we're asking together as a church family. Why do we do what we do? Who are we? What keeps our britches in between the ditches? We've answered that question historically a few different ways. We've said that we seek to be a place where Christ's love is at work transforming us. Super great. Christ's love is at work transforming us. Not our performance, not trying to impress each other, but people who receive love, and then that love starts transforming us. That's what we say keeps our britches in the ditches, all right? And we want to be a people who are formed by that love. I feel like this is making you nervous. I'll just put it down for a second, all right? We said, hey, as a church family, who are we? We want to be people who practice these things. We want to be connected. We want to orient our lives around scripture. We want to get on mission. We want more people to know this. We want to do the practices. We want to apprentice, find experts among us who know things we don't and just learn from others about following Jesus. We want to share our story. Does anybody know who you are? And we want to be a people who get involved in social justice. That one always has an asterisk by it because, again, what's our phrase about that? Not everything that happens in the name of social justice is biblical, but all biblical justice is social. you got to love your neighbor, right? Now, church historians who think about spiritual formation, how do we as people grow? How do, we be tra- how do we move from being people who are prone to wander, and we feel it? How do we be people who abide deeply with Jesus, experience that love, and transform, our own lives, and the lives of those around us. Uh, church historians have talked about a three-legged stool of transformation, a three-legged stool of transformation. One of those legs is prayer, all right? You need to meaningfully connect with God, all right? If you're not spending time, cultivating time with God, you have low chances that you're actually going to pray, or, or you're actually going to grow. Another one of those legs is not limited to, but very much focused on the study of the Bible. So as Christians, we, we pray, we study Scripture. That's another leg of our growth. I'm not limited to the Bible, we study lots of other things, but the Bible is foundational. It shapes us. It's our North Star. It's God's authoritative word for us. Uh, also, though, the other one is deep, meaningful, emotional relationships. If you are missing any one of those, chances of your growth are Slim, all right. You need a, You may be able to balance that stool between all three of those legs to grow. So what we're doing as a church over the next few months or a few weeks is what we're going to do is say, hey, who are we, right? Who is Compass? What are we trying to do? What keeps our ditches, our britches, in between the ditches? What makes us do what we do? Hang on, I didn't forget about this. What makes us do what we do? What keeps us going? That's probably a bad place to put this. Thank you. Yeah, I'll just, we'll put this here. Okay. What keeps us going? All right? Why do we do what we do? I've heard this phrase, and I want you to try it on for size. Tell me how this phrase fits. All right, we don't have to buy this phrase. We're at H&M trying to close. Sometimes mediums, it's like, medium? Who's... How is this a medium, right? All right, we're just going to try it on. You don't have to walk out of the store with it. All right, but I'm really curious. What do you think about this phrase, okay? I trust God, but I do not trust people. All right? Remember, you don't have to buy this. We're just trying it on. I trust God. Don't have a hard time trusting God. What I do have a hard time, though, is trusting people what do we think about such a phrase? Huh? I don't know. We're going to, keep... I don't know. Is that possible? Is it possible to say, hey, I don't trust people, but I really do trust God? Is such a, is such a posture in the world possible? Now, we're not talking about like, look, people hurt us, people let us down. There are some people you should not trust. There, there, there is such a thing as people who are just not safe, all right? And you need to have healthy boundaries we're not talking about I've been hurt by people and then, okay, I can find my refuge and solace in God. That's not what I mean. This, is a, this statement is about a posture, a way of being in the world. It's very easy to trust God. I can be open, vulnerable, known by God. We're good. But as people, pff, yeah, right. You know, the people in my life, I, so I'm not going to be open, vulnerable, known. But I can be known, open, and vulnerable by God. Do you think that such a posture is possible? This morning, we hope to answer such a question, but I hope that you will know the answer is absolutely not. That's not possible at all. It's not possible to have a posture, a way of going through the world, where we say, oh, I trust God, I'm vulnerable, I'm open to God, I'm loved by God, but it's people I don't trust at all. I'm not going to open myself up to anybody. Just, it's just me and Jesus. There is nothing more crucial, there is nothing more crucial to your welfare than connections. There is, I, I don't, I, I'm not still making up my mind about this. I'm not like, oh, let's see, the jury's still out. I feel very, this is a deep, in my bones conviction. There is nothing more crucial to your long-term welfare than the connections you make now it is a scary thing to be known and to be loved all right it is a scary thing to be known and to be loved why is that cuz you heard of have you heard of this whole uh, how we relate there's fight and then there's flight have you guys heard of fight and flight i know there's also freeze but in this, in this analogy, freeze It's always the same thing, right? What does fight do? What does flight do? Well, freeze always freezes, okay? So just, I know that freeze is a thing, but it always does the same thing. It just freezes, okay? So we're, it's a real thing, but there's a way to react when people don't react to us well. That's part of the reason connection is so hard, because we try to connect with people and they can react in one of three ways, all right? There's a relational movement. They can either attack us, all right? They can move against us, Right? Think about like you, your boss. It just feels like you're, that connection you have with your boss, she's always out to get you, all right? You have a boss, you, you go to work, you're, you're really trying to work hard, but it just feels like she's always out to get you, all right? You can respond in one of two ways. You can have a fight response or you can have a flight response. The fight response when someone attacks us is anger, mm-hmm. right? And you may not, look, you're pretty sophisticated. You know, I'm not going to yell at my boss. I don't want to get fired. We take it out in other areas, right? We're just frustrated all the time, right? That's a fight response to relationships, people moving against us. There's also a flight response, though, to people moving against us, fear. That boss who's always feels like they have it out to get us, I'll just do whatever it takes to make them happy, and we live in a state of fear. That's one thing that makes connections hard. We try to connect with people, and they move against us. So we can either do fight or flight or or freeze, right? I don't know what to do. I'm frozen in this. That's not the only way people can move toward us. They can move against us. They can also move away from us, all right? Abandonment, right? So maybe you just, you have a, a, a relationship, a friend. You're constantly inviting them over. You're moving toward them, and oh, man, I'm busy. Can't get together. Maybe it's a romantic relationship, right? Your girlfriend, you're super into them. They are not that into you. What's the fight and what's the flight response to someone moving away from us? Well, the fight response to someone moving away from us is jealousy, right? Oh, they never want to hang out with me, but they're hanging out with so-and-so. What's so-and-so got that I don't, right? Man, they dumped me and they went out with that guy. That guy's gonna be bald at thirty. Like, what's happening? Right? Jealousy. That's the fight response. There's also a flight response. So what's that? Despair. Ah. Oh, I'm unlovable. Yeah. No wonder people move away from me. I, I wouldn't love me. That makes sense. So people can move against us. People can move away from us. But people can also move toward us. We just sang it. Jesus sought me when a stranger love he moves toward us what's our response when someone moves toward us in love we call that a connection and it's a scary thing to be loved it's a scary thing to be loved why is it a scary thing to be loved there's vulnerability being known being open it terrifies a lot of us so we stay hidden there's shame involved too but when people move toward us making real connections for paul that's what keeps his britches in between the ditches okay the letter of second corinthians the letter of second corinthians that he or 2 corinthians however if you want to sound intelligent, I guess, two Corinthians. I don't know why people say that. Does any, if, if you know, just let me know. But the letter of Second Corinthians, what Paul is writing is reconciliation in action. It's a document that's all about reconciliation. See here's what happened. Paul planted a church in Corinth. Corinth was like the Kansas City or the Chicago of the ancient or the first century. All right? There was a lot of business going on there. There was a lot of just commerce, success, OK? And so Paul plants a church there. All right? And then what happens, though, is that the people in Corinth start looking at Paul, and they're like, dude, you don't meet our standards of success. You're poor. We're Corinth, all right? If you want to reach us, you need to be wealthy, but you're you're not. Why should we listen to you? We stop listening to you. And so the letter of 2 Corinthians is Paul's attempt to restore that Relationship. It's a it's it's a document that's all about reconciliation. A connection was made, and then the connection was broken. And so Paul is writing a letter, and he makes some wild statements about reconciliation. He says this: We have been given the ministry of reconciliation. Paul lets the church in Corinth know what keeps his britches in between the ditches: love. Reconciliation. What does it mean, reconciliation? It means the reestablishment of an interrupted or broken relationship. The relationship with the church in Corinth was disrupted. And so Paul is writing them to say, hey, like they started doubting his motives. They're like, well, you know, Paul's not a great public orator. He's not super wealthy. There's these other wealthy Christians that we're going to listen to. Paul's probably shady. Let's not listen to him. And so Paul starts writing to this church to say, man, I love you guys. This is really hurtful. And here's why this matters so much because we're all about reconciliation. We are all about these broken relationships getting mended. And he roots it in how God makes the first move to fix our broken relationship with him. Because it's a terrifying thing to be known and loved by God. A lot of us would much rather live on the edges, playing church, showing up for things, volunteering, serving, learning about God, learning facts about the Bible. But Paul makes a pretty wild case that Christianity is not about being right. Christianity is about being loved. And so he's reaching out to people who have cut off relationship with them. They have moved both against him and away from him. And so Paul moves toward them in love. And as he does, it gives us an identity. Because again, nothing, nothing is more crucial for your long-term well-being than the connections you make. This is a connection that's rooted in God and the gospel, and then it's a connection, a real connection with real people. So 2 Corinthians is where we're going to be. I think there's one more shake. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. If you have a Bible, we're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians 5, starting in verse 11. 2 Corinthians 5, starting in verse 11. Paul's letting us know what keeps his ditches in between what keeps his britches see i'm not southern what keeps his britches in between those ditches and if you would please stand with me for the reading of God's word 2nd Corinthians chapter 5 starting in verse 11 since then we know what it is to fear the lord we try to persuade others what we are is plain to god And I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We're not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but we are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. If we're out of our mind, as some say, it's for God. But if we're in our right mind, it's for you. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all, We're therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we are made by our attachments, by our connections. The relationships we have shape us. God, we almost want to pray if you'd only send us the right people, then we'd really grow. Lord, help us to see that is silly. Help us to see your plan for our welfare is dependent on our attachment to you and our attachment to others. And God, I pray that this place would be a place where people can be known and loved and that we start growing and being formed into your son. I ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. Nothing is more crucial to your well-being than your attachment, your connection to other people. Now, I, this is a can of LaCroix, which is carbonated, okay? I don't know if this is just going to explode. I didn't practice this, so I hope it doesn't just, all right? And your eyes are in this, like the Sea World spray section, all right? But it's a, we've been, I've been saying it's a dangerous thing to be loved by God. And it's true, okay? We who live in the West tend to just think about everything intellectually. Oh, God loves me, right? God has, I guess that means that, you know, God's like, oh, I love you. I have nice thoughts about you. I love you. I, you know, I put up with you, but I, I just, overall, I have a nice disposition toward you. All right? That is not what Paul is saying when he says that God loves us. All right? How do you think, how do you think, God feels about you. How does God feel emotions about you? When God thinks about you, what does he think? What does he feel? When God, when God, when we do things, how does that make God react? How does God react to how we move? Here they are. Effervescent love. I like that. How else does God react to you? No? Nothing? Here's the thing that's, that's just become clear in my counseling appointments when I meet with people. When I say, hey, how do, when you behave in a certain way, how does God react? Here's what I get. Ugh. He's disappointed? Like, yeah, I'm forgiven because of Jesus, but he'd really rather I, all right? Here's what Paul says keeps his britches in between the ditches. Look with me at verse 14. Here's how Paul what Paul says, okay? For Christ's love compels us. Christ's love moves us forward. Christ's love motivates us. Christ's love is the thing that's getting us going. All right? The word for love is remarkable. Here it is. The, Paul, remember, the New Testament wasn't compiled, compiled yet, so Paul's shaping about when he's talking about Christ's love definitely comes from the Hebrew Bible. One of the Hebrew words for love is hesed. and It's a verb. You may have heard there's like an old. It feels like an old '80s pop hip-hop song. Love is a verb, right? You've heard that before. Love is literally a verb in Hebrew. Okay, and this is the verb. Anyway, I can't read half that. I have no idea what that says. Okay, but don't worry. Uh, the pri- This is the verb love. The primary signification. Appears to me to be that of eager and ardent desire by which anyone is led. What does it mean when Paul is saying Christ loves me? He says it's an eager and ardent desire by which he is led. And then it says, this is what, I'm telling you, this is an old nerdy German lexicon that was translated into English by a guy, and Jesenius is not a sentimental person, Okay as most 19th century German theologians weren't. IQ is Latin for the same as. That took me a long time to find on the internet. Uh, Kana. Whoa, that's where we get interested, okay? So when God loves us, that's saying he's moved by a fervent, an ardent desire is moving him. His emotions, the word emotions, all right? They're called emotions because they make us move. They send us into motion. Emotions, okay? What God's emotions, God's feelings toward us, drive him to act in love, just like Kana. You're like, what's Kana? Kana is, is the Hebrew word for jealous. And what's amazing about the Hebrew word for jealous is it's the same thing as it's red. So when God is jealous, he's red, all right? And out of that redness, he acts. When God loves us, how does God feel about us? What does God's love compels us? It is an overflowing. It is too much to handle. This can cannot hold all this carbonation. And it pours out in a more impressive way than that in our lives. (laughs) Thank you. Troy said, whatever you do, just don't do it over the power box. And I, (laughs) all right, we're all right. I know. If if I fall down, you just got all right, you got to help me, all right? See, we're so used to just thinking about God, knowing facts about God. But Paul, for Paul, why he's reaching out in reconciliation is he's saying, "Hey, God, how we are, God, it moves God. It affects God in love. He feels it. He loves us. And because we have experienced that connection, that attachment, God is not a bored babysitter. He, lo- he is overflowing. He can't keep it in. He has to move. All right? And that's why it matters, that phrase. I trust God, but I don't really trust other people. What if that's backwards? What if we have a hard time trusting God and other people? What if our relationship, how we experience others, colors how we think and feel about God? Right? People hurt us. They're not reliable. Well, now I can't even imagine what it would be like to have a God I can count on who loves me, who is overflowing with feelings of love for me. They're intense and it causes him to move. What if that's true? I can't even imagine that because I've not experienced that anywhere in my life. And as a result, Based on how people treat us and how that shaped us, we think that's what God is like. You know, my parents weren't super interested in me. They were always working. They were doing other things. You know, God's running the universe. Does he really have time for me? Does he care? Is he focused? Paul seems to think he does. Because here's what he says. He says that Christ's love compels us, but that flows out of verse 11. Here's what he's saying in verse 11. We know what it is to fear the Lord. Now someone's like, which one is it, bro? So you're saying, he's making a defense. Like, hey, here's who we are. Here's what we do. We fear the Lord. We know the fear of God. And it's his love that compels us. Why is he connecting fear and love? It's because we were nervous for me opening this can... It was like, yo, that's nerve-wracking. Just like I'm afraid. We had to cut down a tree. And I say we. I like I was not involved in the chopping down of this tree. Someone came and cut down a tree in our yard. And I was super nervous. I'm like, whew. Why? Were these people out of control, raging? No, it's just like, man, that's like a really big machine. That's a really big tree. That could fall in my house. That could fall the other way and really hurt my neighbors. Oh, like I'm, I'm starting to feel myself getting nervous, right? Because there's just unknowns. Being loved by God is terrifying. Now someone knows us. Now someone is inviting us to be open, to be vulnerable, to be seen. We have where to hide. Connections are the bedrock for our welfare. But what keeps us from making loving connections, one of the things that keeps us from making connections is shame. We saw in our first parents in the garden, right? God moves toward them, right? They move away from God, right? They disobey. They move away. What does he do? He moves toward. Adam, where are you? What do they do? Hide. Here's just a bummer, like shame, shame is only combated in real embodied relationships. I, not in privacy, I would way rather deal with my own shame privately, like, whoo, here's all the ways I'm a mess, but I'll sort that out, then I'll come into relationship, I'll start making these connections once I get things sorted out. Paul has other plans in mind. This document, he's sorting things out in public. He's saying like, hey, you guys moved away from me. I'm going to move towards you. And I'm actually going to make some pretty wild statements here. I'm saying that this is what it's all about. That God, look at verse 19. God, who reconciled the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, has committed to us the message of reconciliation. The the, the logos of reconciliation is what it says. The word. We have. What do we have? We have this message. This is is what we do. Connection, relationship is not optional. It's deeply connected to the the ministry that God has. It's how he's working in the world. Things were ruptured. Relationships have been broken With, with God with each other, with creation, and he's here to unite all things in Christ. It is not an option. It's like I really like I love coming here, hearing sermons, singing great songs, but woo, I'm not gonna connect to any of these people. Right? Some of us can have this narrative in our in our heads of this. It's like God, hey I'm totally on board with connection, all right? Hey, preacher, I really like what you're saying about connection. That'd be great. You just got to know I'm pretty mature, all right? And I'm just waiting for the right type of people to come along so I can just connect with them, and then I'll start growing, okay? So like if Tim Keller moves into town, Beth Moore, uh, then that's who I'll connect with, and I'll really start growing. I think Paul would push back on that. He is grieved. He This is not the first interaction with the church in Corinth, okay? He wrote four letters and made two visits, all right? He he is deeply invested in these people, and they're immature. They're like, bro, you're poor. We're not going to listen to you. And here's what he's saying. Here's what he's saying earlier in this passage. He says this. I think it's like verse 15. Let's take a look at verse 15. He says this. It's really a, an indictment against these people's immaturity. Hang on, bookmarks, too many bookmarks. Oh, excuse me, verse, yeah, 15. Let's start in 15. He died for all. Why? So that those who live should no longer live for themselves. Here's what he's saying. Because I love you, because I've attached to you, I've made sacrifices for you. I'm not living for myself. The very reason you're rejecting me is because of my love for you. That's immaturity. They're just reading things through their filter, right? Well, if we really should listen to you, we're Corinth, we're important. You You should wear Louis Vuitton, Paul. And Paul's like, I can't because I sold everything to get to you to preach the gospel. Right? And they're like, mm, no, thank you. Like, we, we're going to wait till the next fancy apostle shows up. And Paul is pushing back. He's reaching, he's saying like, hey, I have the ministry of reconciliation. He's trying to mend this relationship. Why? Because Paul needs connection. All right? This is, Paul is saying like, hey, We have been reconciled to God. Now we're reconciled to each other. They're immature. He's mature. But the people at this church, I mean, if Paul came here, he would understand me waiting around for the right people to connect with. I don't know if he would. Part of that is because we're so shaped by the Enlightenment. We think Christianity is about being right. But what if it's really just about being loved? Please don't misunderstand me. I am not saying truth doesn't matter. Next week, is we're going through letter O, orienting our lives around the Bible. All right, truth absolutely matters. But many of us, we are hiding behind our love for truth, and we're not investing in relationships. We're not risking being known because people don't fit my theological standard. People don't fit how I think it looks How I think Christians should look. Paul really pushes against that. Look at verse 16. In verse 16, Paul is saying that's a wrong way of looking at the world. We don't see each other through those lenses. Verse 16 from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view though we once regarded Christ this way. Therefore, verse 17, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. This is a very popular verse. We love this verse. It's a great verse. One of my favorite verses. But we so often just apply it to ourselves. I'm in Christ. I'm a new creation. Which is great. You should do that. And the original context of this verse, Paul is using this, to the church in Corinth, to help them see others differently, not to see ourselves differently. He's saying, like, hey, we don't regard people from a worldly point of view. These people are in Christ, their new creation. We don't don't look at people the way we used to. We have a new way of seeing people. That's a discipline. And when we start to see, like, man, I'm not going to, I'm, poof. There's relational problems here. Sometimes you're grumpy man, sometimes you're just hard to be around. But I'm not going to look at you and identify you as those things. I'm going to look at you as new creation. That's hard. That takes work. Why do you go to that church? Man, that church is kind of a mess, right? Hey, that's not how I see this church. That church has people in it, new creation. There's people in the church who are faithful, loving Jesus, who sit with him. The new creation is alive and well at that church. It's a new way of seeing others, not a way of looking. Paul's like trying to be an eye doctor. He's like, part of the reason these conflicts, why connection is so difficult, is because we're not seeing people the way Jesus sees people. We'd rather look at people and feel right and then hide from connection. We're not seeing people the way Jesus sees. Last week, Mark Fran was here, and he gave us like seven or eight marks of churches that are on like a downward spiral, which is great. Uh, What I would add to that, though, is there's also signs of uh, healthy churches. There's about, everybody has their own list of all these signs of healthy churches. One list I like has one of the marks of a healthy church, holistic small groups. You know that you have people in a body, in a place where you can go to for emotional support, for physical support, for correction. They know you. They love you. That's a sign of a healthy church. Are you known by a community? What does it take to move from I to we? How do we move from an I to a we? How do we be people who say, yeah, I'd like to follow Jesus, to people who are like, hey, we follow Jesus. This is how we do things. We have to risk being known. When we risk being known, we trigger and activate shame. There are parts of my story I would rather you didn't know. There are parts of your story you work very hard to hide from others. Because what the inner narrative, the inner dialogue in our head says, if these people really knew me, they would move away from me or they'd move against me. I don't think they'd move toward me. We That is called shame. Shame keeps us from connections, but there is an answer to shame in this passage. 2 Corinthians 5.19. God, who is reconciling, who's, who's making the first move, who's br- making things right, reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. There's a lot of words for sin in the New Testament. This word for sin, uh, it basically means like trespasses. And you're like, what does that mean? It means just what it sounds like, right? Like you're walking on the Katy Trail and there's a sign, no trespassing. It's like, look, if you're, you're like so private, I don't know if you should have moved beside this trail. But all right, we won't go on your property. No trespassing, right? That's what Paul's talking about. We went somewhere we shouldn't have. We spoke to people in ways they didn't deserve to be spoken to. We screamed at our kids in a way that's like, oh, this isn't how new creation people talk. We trespass. And God does not count that against us. This one who loves us, who's overflowing with love, who's just pouring out love toward us, does not identify us by our trespasses. He doesn't count them against us. Paul gives us a new way of seeing others, and he gives us a new way of seeing ourselves in the process. See, Soren Kierkegaard once said that life, life can only be understood backwards, but it has to be lived forwards. Some of us do not ever want to look backwards because there's a lot of stuff that we're trying to outrun back there. Maybe it's an affair. Maybe it's drug use. Maybe you, you stole something from your employer when things weren't going well, and then things turned around, and now you have a great relationship with your employer. And you're like, oh man, I was going to quit, but I stole this thing, and oh, I, I feel bad about it. We don't want to look back. The message is that God, who's reconciling, who's repairing relationships, who's building meaningful connections out of the overflow of His. Ardent desire to be with you, who's moved by you, who loves you, is not counting people's sins against them in Christ. That means God doesn't just put up with you. He's not like ah, you're the one that keeps messing up. He has a whole new way of looking at you. And the reason that's so hard for us to believe is because we haven't experienced people loving us like that. If we lived in a community where we had people who gave us unconditional love and acceptance, who were excited to be with us, who their face lit up when they saw us, it'd be easier to believe this. But we don't. We live in a place where people are cold, where they're isolated, where if our politics line up, then they're on our side. But if I think differently, oh my gosh, watch out. We're used to that. We're used to keeping our cards close but they're linked, they're related. You can't have a posture of trusting God and a posture of not trusting anyone. They're related. It's both formation. So what do we do? Christ's love compels us. Christ's love is what keeps our britches in between the ditches people will disappoint us. No one deserves your unconditional surrender. I will just lay my whole life down at your feet in love and yeah, you might disappoint me, but you know, I guess that's what I'm, Look at what Look at what Paul says here. He says that he says in verse 15 again that he died so that we might not live for ourselves but live for who? Him the one who loved us and gave himself for us. We can experience that exploding soda can of love that's beyond anything we've ever experienced. And then we can go to people who disappoint us, who hurt us, who say mean, weird things about us, right? We can go toward them. Why? Because love makes the relationship bigger than the problem. No church has ever split because of doctrine or because of carpets, or you pick it, all right? I, the church I grew up at split over a doctrine called limited atonement. You're like, what's that? Don't worry, the people who split the church didn't know either, okay? I'm serious. I went out to lunch with both sides. I'm like, hey, what do you think limited atonement is? And one side would say, it's this. I'm like, okay. And I go out with the other side. I'm like, hey, what do you think it is? It's like, it's this. And they'd say the same thing. I'm like, we can't be with those people because they believe crazy things about it. And it's like, I'm okay. Churches don't split because of doctrines. Churches split when we make problems bigger than relationships. What if the ministry of reconciliation meant you matter more than my preference for worship music, more than my preference for the color of the walls, more than my preference for When we read the Bible, more than my preferences. What if we made people bigger than problems? Problems get smaller. They do. You know, this is a wild stat I heard this week. It's something that, you know, like psychology is one of the most like researched fields. Like there's research out the wazoo. But there was one study that said 80%, 80% of marital problems are not about the problem at hand. It's actually people responding the way they learned as children. So it's like, for example, I heard a story Kurt Thompson, he was a doctor, he was in a counseling appointment, and a husband and a wife. The wife, it was her mom's birthday. She says to her husband, Please call your mother in law on her birthday. Yep. Time goes by, what happens? He forgot. All right, So the wife starts saying, like, hey, why didn't you call my mother-in-law? Why don't you remember these things? How could you forget that? Do you know what the husband does? He gets in his car and drives away, which, this wasn't a normal pattern for their marriage relationship, alarmed the wife. She's like, where did he go? So, you know, just like any normal human being would do, she starts calling him, to which this guy doesn't pick up. Right? He just, and then she's like, oh my gosh, is he in trouble? Did he join a gang? Like, what happened? Right? They come into counseling to Dr. Thompson's office the next day. And he's more perturbed that she was unkind to him than he thought it was odd that he left and drove around town and got everybody worried. And so Dr. Thompson's like, hey, like, don't you see it's kind of odd that you did that? He's like, what? No, why is that odd? And so they started digging and unpacking it and they found out this, this husband, this dad, his dad was really harsh and angry. And so when his dad would come home angry, He'd just hop on his bike and go cruising. It was something he learned from a faulty connection with his dad, a poor attachment, and just bled into another relationship. Like we've said around here, we've got Jesus in our hearts, but we've got grandma and grandpa in our bones. We've all learned to do things because of the attachments, because of the connections, the families we grew up in, the relationships we have. That's why I really believe the working metaphor for a church is a family. We're relearning how to be in the world. We all, all of us, I don't care if you grew up with like Andy Griffith was your dad, all right? We all, none of us got loved the way that would have formed us into whole people. We all navigate disappointments. And in church, we're going to continue navigating disappointments. But church is the place where we relearn how to love and how to be. And it's who we are. We have been given the ministry of reconciliation. We Plead with people is what Paul says. Be connected. Be attached. It is not good for man to be alone. That is not a statement about marriage, it is a statement about your ontology. What? Being. You shouldn't be alone. We know who we are because of our relationships. Like, no, I'm very good at building my own identity. Not true. We know who we are because of the relationships we have. Let me give an example. All right, at my last church, the church I used to work at, I was the old guy. I was 28. Everybody was like 19, 22. And I I colored the way I saw myself. I was like, man, I'm so old. No one has any idea who Blink-182 is. This is so weird. What's, what, fire? What's fire? That's fire? I don't get it. Why are you saying that? All right, I come to this church. I am not old here. And it colors the way I see myself, right? I'm so young. My back doesn't hurt anymore. Oh my gosh, like, (laughs) this is great. Think about it. Even when you're in isolation, when you're alone, you may be alone, but you're reliving conversations. with, Oh, if I wish I had said this. Oh, my mom's. We're we're alone, but we're still shaping our identity from our relationships. And the church is the place where we've been given the ministry of reconciliation, the re-establishment of interrupted or broken relationships. Which is why we do connection groups. What if you had a place? Where you were known, where people heard your story, where you were loved, where people were excited to see you, and where you knew you could get your needs met. When life falls off the rails, you know you have somewhere to turn. You know that there are people who care about you. Man, I've gone to connection groups, and I, you know, I tried, but it was just awkward. Or, you know, I, I get it. I'm not ready to be known yet. You know, I I just want to kind of keep watching. When we talk about formation, we're in the business of spiritual formation, you have to recognize everything we're doing is formative. Saying yes today, taking just a step, just saying, I'm willing. Yes, Jesus, I am willing to love you and love what you love, and you seem to love these people. I'm just going to take a step toward it. I don't know whether I'm I'm open. Yes, That's formative. That's rewiring us. That's changing us. When we go, yeah, I'll do that later, also rewiring and forming us. You know, because it gets easier the next time to do the the next step, and it gets easier the next time to go, yeah, again later, maybe next time. Once they get things sussed out, then I'll really plug in. What if we weren't waiting for people to mature? What if we weren't waiting for that ideal moment? What if we said yes to Jesus now? What would that look like? Last time I was with you, we talked about Brian Stowe. Brian Stowe, you might remember, uh, was a San Francisco Giants fan. It was opening day at Dodger Stadium. Brian was there. He had a Buster Posey jersey on. Buster Posey, one of the greatest catchers in the game, played for the San Francisco Giants. There was a big rivalry, Dodgers-Giants. You might remember that. And again, I'm embarrassed as a big Dodger fan. This is awful what happened. Brian, who's there with his young kids, is headed out to the parking lot, and two Dodger fans, because they didn't like him in the Buster Posey jersey, he was having a good time. They jumped him, they beat him, they put him in a coma. Again, that is not an information problem. Like. Hey, guys, fellas, it's just a game. You know, there's 161 other ones this season. Let's not, you know, worry too much about this. You know, you still have a chance to make the playoffs. That wasn't what was going through their head. Oh, okay, yeah, see you later. We talked about that. And I, but I didn't finish the story. I went on to learn more about Brian. So Brian recovered. I mean, and it's been a long road to recovery, years. I mean, there was talk of like, is he going to live? Is he going to be a vegetable? What's happening? Right? And he lived. And do you know what he's doing now? He's able to walk around with a cane, and he travels to schools telling people about the dangers of bullying now. What's happening there? I don't know Brian's story of faith. He did say in the interview he's trying to spread God's word about bullying. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to assume the best. This is a man being shaped by relationships. People moved against him. They moved against him in violence. And so how did he respond? Did he freeze? Did he fight? No. He started moving toward others in love, He started acting like a protector in his community. He said, this thing happened to me. I want to make sure I can change lives. You know, I can just change the life of one kid to prevent this from happening. I'm going to protect this community. Our connections, our attachments shape us. And the good news of the gospel is that what keeps our bridges in between the ditches is love. An exploding soda can of God's unmerited favor showering us. And the message Paul has for us is church community, it may not look like you want it to. It may not be pretty. It's going to be messy. But Christianity is not about being right. Christianity is about being loved. Father, Father, we don't know the depths of your love for us. Father, we know, we know the disappointments. We know the hurts of broken connections and relationships. And we just read that onto you. Would you forgive us, God? God, would you forgive us for making you in our image? God, help us to trust what your word says about who you are. That it's your love that compels us. That it's your love that is reconciling us to you. Not not your annoyance. You don't put up with us. You are deeply and eagerly moved to love us. Father, help us to respond by giving you our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. This podcast is part of the ministry of Compass Church in Columbia, Missouri. For more information, please check out compasscfc.com.